This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The death penalty is an issue which seems to divide Americans across the spectrum. I find conversations around the death penalty interesting because one of the questions to me is, do we answer violence with violence? Do we answer death with death? Is that who we are? Is that who we want to be? These questions continue to interest me and trouble me all at once. Today's conversation is a deep dive into the issue of capital punishment in American life. My guest today, Griffin Hardy, is the Communications Director for Ministry Against the Death Penalty, or MADP for short. MADP was founded by Sister Helen Prejean, a Catholic nun famous for writing the book Dead Man Walking. The mission statement from SisterHelen.org states, The Ministry Against the Death Penalty believes in the dignity of all people and fosters creative, reflective, and educational programs that awaken hearts and minds, inspire social change, and strengthen our democracy's commitment to human rights. So today's topic is the death penalty and capital punishment. And without further delay, Here's my conversation with Griffin Hardy of Ministry Against the Death Penalty. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I am pleased today to welcome Griffin Hardy on the show. Griffin is the Communications Director for Ministry Against the Death Penalty, Uh, Griffin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Greg. So we are going to talk a lot about the death penalty and some current events going on and also the mission of the organization that you work for, Ministry Against the Death Penalty. And this is an issue that seems easy to take a stand on um, one way or the other. It seems like it would be so cut and dry as far as deciding So whenever I was uh, talking about this a little bit at work today, I found that many of my colleagues and people that I spoke to about this were genuinely perplexed on the issue. And just to kind of like state where I'm coming at this conversation from right off the bat, I kind of feel like I'm genuinely anti-death penalty, but I also admit that I've never been like in these types of situations where death penalty convictions are handed out in a court of law. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. So could you start off by briefly introducing yourself and the mission of Ministry Against the Death Penalty? Sure. Um, So I'll start with a little bit about Ministry Against the Death Penalty, or we call it MADP for short. Um, MADP was founded by Sister Helen Prejean, who uh, your listeners might know as the author of Dead Man Walking, which was then turned into an Academy Award-winning film starring Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn in the mid-1990s. 
So MADP uh, springs out of Sister Helen's work. We are primarily a public education group. Um, we, we look at our work mostly as storytelling, and there's a lot of stories to tell about the death penalty from a lot of different perspectives. Uh, so what we try to do is bring the public into, into the issue, into the conversation in a way that for most people, they will never engage with the death penalty otherwise. The death penalty is an issue that, thankfully, most of us don't really have much of a reason to think about on a regular basis. So our goal is to create a space for people to really thoughtfully and consciously engage with the issue. Excellent. So how did you get involved in this kind of work? I grew up in Illinois. And I was in high school in 2011 when Illinois was debating abolishing the death penalty. And we had had a kind of a long history in Illinois of serious problems uh, when it came to capital punishment. Our governor in the early 2000s had instituted a moratorium after we had freed more innocent people from death row than we actually executed. And that carried through until 2011 when our state legislature passed a bill to abolish the death penalty. So when that bill was sitting on the governor's desk, uh, I was in a Catholic high school and we had an extra credit opportunity to write a letter to the governor, either for or against abolishing the death penalty. And um, I might have taken it a little bit more seriously than my classmates. I was <laughs> feeling kind of engaged with the issue, but I really did a lot of research I wrote my letter to the governor, Pat Quinn, and uh, pretty soon thereafter, he abolished the death penalty. So I don't know if I want to take uh, any credit for that, but uh, <laughs> the timing uh, is definitely suspect. Fantastic. So how was your journey post-revelation, uh, basically, to you about getting involved in this issue? Like, what was your trajectory after writing this letter? Like, where did your education take you? So I, uh, I went to undergrad university at uh, DePaul University in Chicago. So I stayed in Illinois uh, where we had just abolished the death penalty. So I was uh, engaged with this issue and interested in it, but my state didn't have a death penalty anymore. So locally, there wasn't a lot that I could do about the issue. But Sister Helen has a relationship with DePaul where she comes and visits the university for about a week every spring. And I had an opportunity to meet her, and, uh, and then I started uh, working for her soon thereafter. Um, so it kind of, kind of all came together. And ever since then, I've uh, I've been chugging along on this issue, learning more every day, and uh, getting a little bit more uh, knowledge and direct experience, either via engaging with. Um, the situation directly or listening and learning from those who have a personal connection to the death penalty and the criminal justice system in general. So what's your day-to-day -day life like working with MADP? Like, what do you do on a regular basis for the organization? In my role in communications, a lot of what I do is follow the day-to-day -day news of what's going on in the death penalty world. So I keep up with 
cases where there are pending execution dates. Uh, I keep up with uh, ongoing death penalty trials that are going on across the country. And then also with efforts that are going on in some states to abolish a death penalty, some states they have efforts to reinstate the death penalty. So it's just a little bit of everything. It's uh, legal, it's political, it's religious. There's definitely um, a, a religious element to our work, given that we uh, were founded by a Catholic nun. We are part of uh, Sister Helen's religious congregation. So we work a lot with religious communities. Uh, so there's kind of just a smattering of all kinds of different sub areas that uh, are a part of my work with the death penalty. Excellent. So Ministry Against the Death Penalty states its stance on the issue directly in the title of the organization. So how is rejecting the death penalty a critical human rights issue of our time? The death penalty is, it's a, it's a social choice to view life as expendable, as something that can be thrown away based on a person's actions or inactions in the course of their life. So when we discount the value of human life in this way, where we say um, some people uh, just don't deserve to live, that really undermines every other human right that we have just as people. Um, if we don't have the right to uh, go about our lives and not be killed by our government, uh, then pretty much every other human right we have is uh, just a drop in the bucket. So to piggyback off that, how is it a spiritual issue? Because I know that uh, Sister Helen, as a Catholic nun, founded this within her religious work. So how is it spiritual in nature? Sister Helen started her work against the death penalty as a spiritual advisor to a death row prisoner in Louisiana. When a person is executed in most states, they are allowed to have a spiritual advisor with them in the days and hours leading up to their execution. In some situations, that's the only person that can consistently be with them throughout the whole process. So in that kind of sense, there's a spiritual element to the situation where somebody has kind of an expiration date, they know I'm going to be killed on this day at this time, and uh, I got to get my spiritual ducks in a row. I've got to come to terms with this situation. Uh, and that's a lot of what Sister Helen does. She works with death row prisoners uh, in those uh, days, weeks, months, years, sometimes ahead of that moment. And helps them to not only come to terms with their, their situation, but also to come to terms in situations where the prisoner is guilty with the crimes that they've committed and the harm that they've done to a real people. So I'm a high school teacher in Missouri, and we'll get into the significance of Missouri and why you and I are talking today in just a little while. But I want you to imagine just for a moment that I have invited you to come and talk to my seniors in a religious studies class in a high school in the middle of Missouri. So you come in 
as a representative of Ministry of the Death Penalty, and they're all 17 and 18 years old, what would you try to persuade them of as future voters, as thinkers, as citizens of an advanced democracy? What would you try to say to them? I think the first thing that we can ask really anybody, but especially young people, is to really just take a minute to think about the death penalty and all of the complicated pieces of the puzzle. It's not something that most people think about on a regular basis, if ever. So the first step is just to really consider it at all. And politically speaking, I always like to tell people that the death penalty is a government public policy. That's what it is. Um, we can we can kind of couch it in terms of uh, criminal justice and all those things, and those are public policies as well. But at the end of the day, this is a public policy, and we should treat it similarly. If it's not acceptable for uh, government governments to fund public policies that aren't working, we should give that same look at the death penalty. And the facts on the death penalty are very clear. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't achieve the goals that uh, its proponents claim that it's achieving. It doesn't deter crime. There are ample studies that show that violent crime rates are actually higher in states that continue to execute people than in states that have abolished the death penalty. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't reduce costs, which on its face is kind of a troubling argument to make because we're reducing human lives to is it cheaper to keep someone in prison or kill them. But even when you, want, even when you look at it that way, it's actually cheaper to house a prisoner for the rest of their life than to go through all of the costs involved with the death penalty process. And then really, I think most importantly, there have been 161 innocent people who have been freed from death rows across this country since 1973 after being sent there for crimes they didn't commit. And it's difficult to say definitively, but I feel pretty confident that we've executed at least one, if not several innocent people over that same period of time who didn't have a chance to prove their innocence before they were executed. And you know, if if we had um, one out of every 10 airplanes crashing, would we want our government to do something about that? Would we want something to change? I would hope yes. And when you look at the numbers of the amount of people who have been executed and the amount of people who have been exonerated and free, it's about one in 10. For every 10 executions, one person is exonerated and free from death row. That's not an error rate that I think should be acceptable to anybody. Yeah. So, so from this political viewpoint and from a practical viewpoint, uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of factual uh, foundation for the death penalty to stand on. Interesting. I think that, that, that all of those things would go into the brains of American 17 and 18-year-olds and probably resonate pretty loudly in their minds. So as a, um, a group that has a sort of um, religious tint to the organization, um, 
Is there any sorts of like scripture that you would cite as being like the main inspiration for MD, MADP? Or is there any like scripture that people like to use that you've heard that argue for the death penalty? I would say that we are a gospel-based organization. We are, our ministry and our work is really based in the gospel idea of um, spreading the good news, uh, holding the powerful accountable, and upholding the dignity of all people, even those who, in the eyes of society, might not be particularly popular. When we talk about particular scriptural verses um, in the death penalty, I like to call the issue biblical quarterbacking. We have some verses in the Old Testament that would seem to support the death penalty. We have some verses in the New Testament and just the general idea of the shift from kind of a vengeful God in the Old Testament to a more merciful God in the New Testament that would indicate a shift away from supporting the death penalty. The reality is um, you can take a biblical verse and if you want to contort it, you can make it fit whatever preconceived idea you have. So uh, it becomes an issue where we're not looking to Scripture as kind of a guide or a, a uh, source for, for how we might uh, shape our lives and look at the world. And it, it can really easily and toxically become a way of um, – taking scriptural verses and just making them fit what we want them to. So we try to stay away from, you know, Leviticus says this and Mark says that. But in general, I think it's this idea of uh, God is merciful, God is uh, loving, and you can't call executing a person a merciful or loving act. Yeah, and you know, I was looking earlier at some scripture before we were planning to talk, and I kept finding things in like Exodus and Numbers and a little bit in Deuteronomy, um, a little bit in Acts, a little bit in Romans, and I felt like how easy it would be to pull single lines of quotes and just use them in whatever out-of-context conversation I may be having at any given moment. And sure, and if you really think about the historical context of the Old Testament at that time, uh, I don't know that it could be fairly said that there was a safe way to hold violent prisoners away from society and keep society safe. So some might say that the death penalty at that time was justified on the basis of um, societal safety. That's kind of the position that the Catholic Church has taken over time. And that today, the situation is markedly different. We have uh, maximum security prisons. We have effective means of keeping dangerous individuals separated from society so that they can't harm anybody. We don't need to kill people in order to keep society safe when we have non-lethal alternatives. Excellent. So let's go back to talking about my students for a second. So a question just sprung to mind that I want to explore with you for a second. And that comes to the idea of considering candidates in elections. So all of my students who are now eligible to vote for the first time, 
um, thinking about them, what would you encourage them to know about capital punishment when they are considering candidates? Like, what are some hard realities they should know, and what should they be asking candidates in like letters and town halls and things like that? It takes a lot of courage for a political candidate to outright oppose the death penalty. Unfortunately, that's changing slowly, but it's still the case that in a lot of places, uh, it's it's a real risk to take a strong stand against the death penalty. And that's because it's a very complicated issue and it's hard to it's hard to explain a complicated stand on an issue like that in a soundbite. Um, some candidates are working on that. Some are better at it than others. But in terms of capital punishment and uh, candidates running for office, it's important to kind of look beyond the uh, what you see on the face of that position, either for or against the death penalty, and probe at the underlying pieces of that if a candidate is for the death penalty, why is that? And a lot of the time they'll say it's because we need to uh, have justice for victims and victims' families. But I, I would push back against that and say, wouldn't it be more sensible to take the millions of dollars that are spent on the death penalty system and devote those toward actual social services, actual uh, actual rest? institution and other means to tangibly help victims and victims' families rather than offering this empty promise of an execution that may or may not come decades down the road. And even if it does come to pass, you know, unfortunately, those victims' families will still go home to a table with an empty chair. There's nothing that can bring back a, a deceased loved one. And an execution doesn't do anything to solve that. And it actually just puts another family in that same situation of having a loved one killed in a very violent manner. So it's about probing at the underlying, at the underlying political considerations involved. There's money involved. There's, uh, there's, just creating the appearance of being tough on crime without actually doing anything to solve the problem of violent crime. It's like I said earlier, the death penalty isn't a deterrent. It doesn't really make society any safer. It doesn't reduce violent crime. It, it, it's just a, uh, it, it's almost a political prop to make a candidate appear like they're doing something about violent crime when in re reality, the solution that they're peddling if anything, doesn't make the situation better and might actually make it worse. So I want to ask a two-part question, and I'm going to ask the cynical one first. So what are some of the least hopeful trends that you notice regarding the death penalty in the United States? One thing that I've noticed a lot in the last few months uh, is as execution dates come up, the death row prisoners are older and older because they've been on death row for increasingly long amounts of time, some of them 30, 40 years. Um, uh, Alabama, in fact, has an execution coming up where the man scheduled to be killed is 83 years old. Um, 
that raises all kinds of medical problems. There's also an increasing number of prisoners who have kind of rare or complicated medical issues. They have cancer. They have uh, issues with their veins. And it's leading to all kinds of problems in the carrying out of executions. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to see anybody executed. But I also don't want to see the process go so horribly awry that it is uh, a, a gruesome spectacle. And recently in Alabama, there was an execution attempted and failed where the prisoner, Doyle Ham was poked with a needle over a dozen times. His bladder was punctured. There was blood everywhere. This is what the death penalty is becoming in the United States. And in some ways, it's a more honest take on what's really going on. Uh, the death penalty isn't a clean thing. It's not a, it's not a uh, medical process. No matter how much we try to disguise the fact, we're killing a person. And that's a violent act. And that's a dirty act. So uh, that's kind of discouraging in some ways that we're seeing increasingly brutal execution processes, some of them failing, some of them killing the prisoner, but in a very, very painful way. That's discouraging. And we're also, we're also seeing uh, efforts in some states to abolish the death penalty be stymied at early stages. So this year, there were efforts to abolish the death penalty that started up in the legislatures of Washington State and Utah. And in Washington State, it made it to the Senate committee before it was tabled in Utah. I'm not sure how far it made it, but it, it didn't even make it to a full vote of either house of the legislature. A few years ago, Nebraska abolished the death penalty over the veto of the governor and then a popular voter referendum reinstated the death penalty. California voters passed a referendum to speed up the appeals process and make executions happen faster. California has over 600, 650 people on death row or more. So uh, that's not encouraging. That's been tied up with lawsuits. But um, there's in, in every social movement throughout history, if you look carefully, it kind of comes in ebbs and flows. There are successes, there are failures, there's one step forward, two steps back. Eventually we will get there, but in the meantime, there are real people whose lives are on the line, and that's pretty troubling. On the other side of that, what is giving you hope? Well, in general, public support for the death penalty is at the lowest level it's been at in my lifetime, for sure, and really since the 1970s when the Supreme Court for a few years abolished the death penalty legally. Um, I think the most recent Pew poll showed that only 49% of the American public are in support of the death penalty when offered the alternative of life without parole. Um, just in general... I think people are waking up to what's going on. I think that all of this news about botched executions and innocent people being freed from death row, 
prosecutorial misconduct, um, the racial and socioeconomic injustice of the whole thing. I think that that's connecting with people more and more, and they're realizing that there's a whole lot of flaws to this system and not a whole, whole lot of benefits, if any at all. The other positive thing is that there are fewer and fewer people being sent to death row. Just just last year in Texas, the the lowest number of new death sentences were imposed, and that's really saying something for Texas. Like in in recent history, over the last several decades, if not going back to 1970s or before, that's pretty remarkable, and that's that's being that's being replicated across the country. So what we have is these small pockets across the country where we have individual counties that represent a disproportionate number of the death sentences. Um, I don't remember the specific percentage, but it, it's very high. Um, one county in Texas that historically produced a lot of death sentences was Harris County, where Houston is. And... In fact, last year, Harris County had the uh, lowest number of death sentences it's ever had. So even in those counties where historically there have been a hugely disproportionate number of death sentences, the number of new death sentences and even the number of uh, capital trials where prosecutors seek the death penalty and may or may not succeed, that's going down as well. So one of the things that is running through my mind right now, and this might seem like the most basic question, but I would imagine a lot of people don't know the answer to this. On an ordinary death row in a state that does executions, who is the person who carries out the actual act of execution? Well, that's a good question because... Uh, more and more in the last few years, states have been passing uh, execution secrecy laws that keep all this information completely sealed off from public scrutiny or, or transparency in general. Even going back a long way, the identity of the executioner has always been something that has been held pretty secret. Uh, but even now, we don't know the the people who participate in the strap down team um, is what it's called, where there are a team of guards that will uh, forcibly or not remove the prisoner from, from uh, his or her cell, drag them or walk them, depending on how cooperative they are, to the death chamber and strap them down on the gurney. We don't know who those people are. We don't know who the medical personnel that are setting the IV lines are. We don't know if or who the doctors supervising all of this are. We don't even know what drugs are being used in a lot of these executions. So um, it, it's, it's almost impossible to say at this point who is carrying out executions. There are a few people who have been brave enough since leaving that role and have come out publicly and they they now speak against the death penalty. One of them is Jerry Givens from Virginia. He executed dozens of people, um, first in the electric chair and then by lethal injection. 
There are former prison wardens who have overseen the process that are speaking out against the death penalty. Uh, one of them is Frank Thompson from Oregon. He oversaw two executions in the 1990s. Oregon hadn't executed anybody since the 1950s, I think, before that. So there was no lethal injection at that time. And Frank had to come up with the whole lethal injection process. He had to pick the team. He had to train the team. He had to oversee the execution. A lot of people who have participated in executions, either directly as the executioner or as the warden overseeing it, or more indirectly on the strap-down team, uh, come out of it with serious trauma, some of them with diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, we've heard of people retiring, quitting their jobs. Um, there have even been uh, some, some reports of people committing suicide after, after doing this. Uh, th these, are, these are innocent people, innocent state workers who are just going about doing their job and they're being asked to kill a human being. Nobody should be put in that position. So whenever I think about, you mentioned medical personnel who are in these situations, and whenever people go through medical school, they take on something called the Hippocratic Oath that promises to do no harm. Are there doctors who are allowed to be involved in executions? It's not that they're allowed to be involved in executions. It's that there isn't a rigid enforcement mechanism. The American Medical Association has been very clear in, in its own regulations that doctors and the American Nurses Association has taken a similar position. Nurses, doctors are not supposed to participate in executions. They're not supposed to, uh, they're not supposed to have any role other than maybe uh, declaring the time of death and signing the death the death certificate but what we've seen somewhat because of these execution secrecy laws details are scarce there are doctors that are participating far beyond that point uh a few years ago in oklahoma there was a, a botched execution of clayton lockett this was in april of 2014 and there was a doctor involved there who set an IV line is a doctor and a nurse or an EMT working together and they set the IV line incorrectly. They didn't put it into Clayton Lockett's vein. They put it into his muscle. So they were pumping these killing drugs, not into his veins, but into his muscle. And uh, he was sort of semi sedated and then woke up and tried to get up off the table and he wound up dying of a heart attack, not not from being executed, but just from the stress of being pumped full of these drugs that are just going into, uh, you know, the muscles and kind of just open cavernous area in his groin. That's where they had to set the IV. Um, and the doctor participated in that, and the official report on it said that the doctor was very upset because his white lab coat got blood on it, so he would have to buy a new lab coat. Um, so that, that's, that, that on its own is disturbing that anybody would, would uh, be able to so desensitize themselves to their actions and their surroundings to feel that way. But even more so when we're talking about a, a medical doctor, medical professionals whose role is to preserve life, save lives, not to kill people. So 
that is thoroughly upsetting. So let's dive into my state. I live in Missouri. So how is my state unique with regards to capital punishment in the United States? Missouri is very unique in recent death penalty history for a couple of reasons. The first being, in sort of a chronological order, I'll go through it. The first being, starting in around 2014, there were a series of executions scheduled in Missouri, about one a month for a pretty good period of time. I think they wound up getting through 17 of them. So yeah, that sounds about right. A year and a half. Um, and at first people were kind of confused because lethal injection drugs at that time were almost impossible to purchase. And Missouri somehow seemed to have an unlimited supply of them. And Missouri, like a lot of other states, has these uh, execution secrecy laws. So the identity of the drug supplier, the method of procuring the drugs, uh, and all of that is kind of cloaked in secrecy. Nobody knew where the drugs were coming from. Nobody knew, uh, nobody knew how they were being produced, where they were purchased, any of that. And uh, to their credit, a lot of journalists and news organizations filed a lawsuit at that time that was fought over the last four years and only recently did the truth about where all these drugs came from come out. And what happened was Missouri found a compounding pharmacy in Earth City in early 2014 that was willing and wanted to provide drugs for executions. A compounding pharmacy, for those who uh, aren't up on pharmaceutical knowledge, I wasn't before I started doing this work, uh, a compounding pharmacy is a semi-regulated pharmacy that takes different underlying ingredients and compounds and can sort of chemically create drugs that might be otherwise hard to purchase or might be scarce. So instead of purchasing the drug directly from Pfizer or Acorn or whatever major pharmaceutical company, you can also go to one of these compounding pharmacies and they can mix up a bunch of ingredients and create a generic version of these drugs. So Missouri went to this compounding pharmacy in Earth City and they bought a stockpile of uh, the drug that Missouri uses for executions, which I believe is pentobarbital. Yep. And uh, over the last few years through this lawsuit, through all the information that's come out, what's been learned about this compounding pharmacy is that they've got a lot of problems that raise some serious concerns about the drugs that Missouri has been using in these executions. This pharmacy has been cited by the FDA multiple times. Uh, I was just reading recently that the FDA went to the pharmacy one time to inspect and the pharmacy's owner or CEO tried to block the FDA inspectors from entering. They eventually got in that day and they found all kinds of um, really lax procedures that wound up leading to contamination of drugs that were being sent out to patients, who knows, maybe contaminated drugs were sent to the Missouri Department of Corrections. Um, this pharmacy was involved in reselling drugs that had been returned without labeling them as such. 
Um, there was issues related to people writing themselves prescriptions. There's a lot of kind of shady dealings going on. And the way that the Missouri government engaged with this pharmacy was also pretty shady because they were so set on preserving secrecy. And, what would yeah. happen when they need to restock the drugs was the an official from the Missouri Department of Corrections would uh, be given a bundle of cash. They would go secretly meet with somebody from this pharmacy. It's unclear whether they met at the pharmacy, they met somewhere else. And what essentially is a drug deal would transpire where the cash was exchanged for the lethal injection drugs. And they'd both go on their separate ways. Um, so, that, I mean, that's, that's pretty unique to Missouri. Similar things have happened in other states, but uh, Missouri is, for better or worse, unique in the respect that all of this came out after years and years of litigation and these uh, high-risk drugs, as the FDA calls them, have been used to kill 17 people and, as far as we know, would have been used and can continue to be used in any future executions. You know, I was reading about this as well, and you sent me some really interesting information. And one of the really fascinating things that I read today is that this single pharmacy's involvement in these sales seem to be almost uh, inclined because of political persuasion, um, like like your political inclinations, um, not some kind of medical desire to create a, a an effective product. Does that make sense? It does, and I think that um, the the language that's been used is that there was a political motivation for this pharmacy to supply lethal injection drugs at a pretty big risk to them. Um, a lot of pharmacies don't provide drugs for lethal injections because they're afraid that if uh, the public finds out about it, there'll be a backlash. And this pharmacy took the risk anyways. From what I from what I interpret it to be the basis of they support the death penalty. They want to provide the drugs to kill prisoners in Missouri. That That's kind of the way I took what you're talking about in terms of there being a political motivation behind it. Yeah, you definitely said it more eloquently than me, though, so thank you for that. Um, so yesterday in Missouri, we had a stayed execution of a man named Russell Bucklew, and he wasn't given the stay by the governor, Eric Greitens, but by the Supreme Court of the United States in a vote of five to four. So why was Russell Bucklew given a stay of execution, and why was it done by the Supreme Court and not the governor of the state? Russell Bucklew's case is another example of what I mentioned before, where there are an increasing number of uh, prisoners with complicated medical issues. Uh, Russell, or he, I think he likes to go by Rusty, uh, has a very, very rare congenital condition that causes blood-filled tumors to develop and grow in his head, neck, and throat. And the issue that was presented to the Supreme Court was that when Rusty would have been laid down on the gurney, there's a tumor 
that is in his throat and even when he's not under a, a lot of stress, not laying down, he still has to consciously work to not suffocate because this tumor blocks his windpipe. So the concern was that, that Rusty's laying on this gurney because he has compromised veins, they would have had to do a grind down and set a central line, which would have been very stressful. So he's laying down. This uh, tumor in his throat is you know, potentially blocking his windpipe, his trachea. He can't breathe. Um, because these tumors, excuse me, because these tumors were filled with blood, they would burst when uh, put under a lot of stress. So um, he could be laying on this gurney and being pumped full of these um, execution drugs and the tumor, either the one in his throat or in any other part of his head or neck could burst. And not only would these drugs be, be flowing through him, but he would essentially be choking to death on his own blood. Um, and further complicating things is that, um, in some states and in some drugs have the effect of paralyzing, um, a person while they're being executed. So it could become, it could be impossible for, for, a prisoner who is struggling, who is choking to death rather than, you know, dying of being poisoned, essentially, uh, to indicate that anything is going wrong. So all of this was presented to both the governor and the Supreme Court. The governor was aware of this for much longer than the Supreme Court. Um, you know, the Supreme Court only considers an issue when it's presented to them uh, legally, the governor um, considers these issues with every execution when there's a clemency request, and there's a longer time frame for that. Um, and none of this was new information because Rusty had an execution date in 2014 that was also stayed by the Supreme Court for the exact same reason. Uh, maybe this time there was some slightly new information, or maybe his condition had deteriorated a little bit, but it was the, 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 same, the same essential issue was involved in 2014. Um, I don't believe that uh, Eric Greitens was the governor then. I believe it was Jay Nixon at that time. Correct. Um, but in any event, none, none of this was really new information. Nobody should have been surprised by um, this medical condition. And uh, luckily, the Supreme Court did vote to grant a temporary stay of execution on this five to four vote. Um, and the governor, for whatever reason, um, did not intervene. So where things stand with this temporary stay of execution, uh, the Supreme Court didn't fully consider the underlying uh, appeal that Rusty had filed. They just considered whether or not his execution should have gone ahead yesterday. Five of them said, no, it shouldn't go ahead. We'd like to fully consider this appeal. And so the execution was stopped. If the Supreme Court decides, you know what, after all, there really isn't much of an issue here. We don't want to hear this case. Then uh, Missouri is free to try again a third time. Hmm. So I keep thinking about this country that we live in, the United States of America. And I can't help but wonder 
how we compare to other advanced democracies in the world with regards to our death penalty usage. Do you know how we compare to other nations in the world? The United States is pretty much alone in terms of developed so-called westernized countries in terms of the death penalty. There are maybe a few that still um, execute people, but uh, the United States is really an outlier. We're in the company of countries like North Korea, China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, um, and uh, other countries that in any other context, I think most people would not want to be in lockstep with on human rights issues. But here we are, are um, kind of right in line with these other countries on this particular issue. It's troubling because uh, the United States is often viewed as um, kind of a human rights beacon or a human rights leader. And on some issues, sure, but on the death penalty, definitely not. Uh, we're behind the curve big time on the death penalty. Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation, Griffin. Um, if people want to know more about the work of your organization, where should they go and where should they look? So we have a website. It's www.sisterhelen.org. Uh, Sister Helen is on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, you can search for Sister Helen Prejean. That will come right up. And uh, her handle on Twitter is at Helen Prejean. And uh, she would scold me for not mentioning that it's Helen with one L. And uh, Prejean is P-R-E-J-E-A-N. You'd be surprised. There's all kinds of different ways of spelling and pronouncing Prejean. I've heard them all. But uh, that's where you can find her. Griffin Hardy from the Ministry Against the Death Penalty. Thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Um, this has been an important conversation to me, and I am grateful to you for your time this evening. Thanks so much. It's been great talking with you. Thanks. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.